Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. In just a moment, I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. And if the minister can discipline himself this morning, his message is going to be a little shorter, so that we might be sure we start at least by 1130 for our congregational meeting. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, which begins with the words, For this reason, that refers to what Paul has just said primarily in verses 1 through 13 about the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. At verse 13, he has sought to encourage his uh, audience, the Ephesians, with the words, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am for you, which is your glory. And now he continues on at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Things don't seem to be doing very well for the church today. As we move into the 21st century, we find that many people are turned off by the church. I think of at least three A words, attacks, apathy, and attendance. The attacks continue without stop against many Christian sacred things. There's great apathy. People are not even interested in the Word of God or the church. Attendance has dwindled in many churches. The church seems to have had it. His glory days are gone. Ah, but look at our text this morning, verse 21 of Ephesians 3. There are four phrases in this verse I want to share with you briefly this morning. The first has to do with the opening words of verse 21. To Him, the Lord, be glory. What do we mean by glory? Well, we mean beauty, symmetry balance, magnificence, brightness. An obvious word, glory, to be applied to the Lord God, who has revealed His glory, both in His general revelation and the marvelous creation of the world and universe, but also in His special revelation revealed to us in the Word of God, especially in the living Word, Jesus Christ, His Son. At verse 20, Paul is broken into a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Lehman Strauss has translated it this way. 
He is able to do all we ask or think, to do above all we ask or think, to do abundantly above all we ask or think, to do exceedingly abundantly over all, above all we ask or think. This phrase is termed by G.B. Wilson an intensive superlative. What do you mean by that? It means that Paul could not express in mere words what he wanted to say about God's love for his people, for his church. It means that something more could be conceived, but he couldn't fully express it. So he did his best with that phrase. Now, believers have no problem with those opening words, do we? Especially if we're from the Calvinistic Reformed tradition. We put emphasis upon the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the magnificence of God. To Him be glory, of course. His essential being and character. His shining display of that glory that was even seen when Jesus was on earth. As John writes, we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory is the sum of all of His attributes as they are revealed to men. And as men then return that to Him because of His glory. Revelation 4.11, John writes, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. So I think we're all on board with that. But now look at the next phrase. To Him be glory in the church. The church. This despised group of strange, bigoted people were scattered throughout the world. Glory in the church. Doesn't, don't those words take away from what we just talked about? To Him be glory. And now Paul says, glory in the church. Or if you will, by the church. So this phrase catches us by surprise. In the, isn't the divine glory something that is limited if we talk about being magnified in sinful people like ourselves? Nevertheless, there it is in the text. To Him be glory in the church. In some way. The church is an instrument of the glory of God. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, in some wonderful way, the glory of God is in you. Those little groups of people we call churches or missions, scattered on every continent in the world today in the islands of the seas, here and there they display something of the glory of God. He himself has chosen to manifest that glory in the community of the redeemed. But in this verse, notice that there are two ways in which God's glory is said to be shown. One, in the church. But what is the phrase right after that, the third part of our text this morning? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Ah, puts a little different light on, a little different spin on it, doesn't it? The close positioning of these two phrases with the daring nature of their order, Paul puts the church before Christ Jesus. 
That gains our attention. What a truth is revealed here in this text. Both the church and Jesus Christ are coupled in the infinitely wonderful purpose of God. Christians are in Him, and He is in the church. We behold His glory, and then we give glory to Him. The Lord of the church is at the same time the glory of God in the church and the glory of God through the church. How is this at all possible? Look at the end of verse 20. According to the power at work within us. It's the divine power, divine work of God first in us that enables us in any way to express the glory of God in our lives. That power, of course, first occurs in what we call conversion. When individual sinners are confronted with their simple predicament, their guilt before a holy God. And then they see Jesus set forth as the Savior who gave his life for them, who was raised from the dead for their justification that they might be declared not guilty in God's sight and receive the righteousness of Christ upon them. That power given to them also to have the ability to do what otherwise they could not do. Turn back to the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 19 and 20. Paul speaks about the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. I think we could all agree that it's difficult for us even to imagine a human body without a head. Oh, maybe in some science fiction movies or something, they depict that in some way. But obviously, the human body, you can lose a limb, an arm, or a leg, but it's rather difficult to exist in this world without a head. Well, I'll apply that in the spiritual realm to the church, which is called the body of Christ. How can we possibly exist without the head of the body? Scripture sets forth, of course, as Jesus. Paul uses the imagery in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. He says, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You have the, the bride, the church, the bridegroom, Jesus, the head of the church. You have the redeemed, people like us, and you have her redeemer, Christ himself displays that glory through us. First of all, he displayed it in the great historical facts of the Son of God coming to this earth, in his very virgin birth, in his perfect life, in his horrible suffering and death, his glorious resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Those are historical facts. But this is very important that we also have to realize that that glory of Jesus Christ is displayed in and through His church as the church is faithful to the gospel message, the truth of Scripture. And that's how we really display the glory of the Lord in our church here at Westminster, is to make sure we're setting forth the gospel, that there's only one way of salvation through Jesus Christ and only by faith in Him. Now, there's one more phrase 
in this text that we want to notice. I'll begin at the beginning of the text. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul seems to have invented that phrase in the Greek text. There's richness and amplification of language flowing from his heart on this subject. As I mentioned before, it's difficult in this verse for Paul to put into words all that he feels and understands about the glory of God, especially as it is manifested in the church. No version or translation can quite get it. Look, here's literally what it says in the Greek text. That this glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, is unto all generations of the age of ages. Or unto all the generations of the eternity of eternities. So what Paul's trying to get across to people like us is this, that this glory in the church, and Jesus Christ, of course, will be manifested forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Think of that. The flow of moments from our past to our present situation today to our future pilgrimage for Jesus Christ will continue on and on. It won't end with our death. It won't end with Christ's return. It will continue on over and over and over and on and on. Quite a thought. In the new heavens and earth, we shall advance from one pinnacle of discovery to another in a never-ascending series. How does the familiar verse of the hymn go? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now, I think we're going to be no more than just being a big choir singing praise forever and ever and ever. God's going to have a lot of projects for us to do, a lot of wonderful things that we can enjoy in our heavenly home, which we can't even fully grasp at this point in our time. But in some way, throughout eternity, God is going to exhibit His glory in those whom He has redeemed. Christ Jesus will find special pleasure in the church, in His people. Ephesians 2, verse 7. Let me back up to verse 6. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now to this doxology, Paul adds the word Amen. What does Amen mean? Let it be. Let it be so. Now, not so much in Presbyterian churches, but in other contexts. From time to time, you'll hear somebody say, Amen. And people are, are just, they feel like, let it be. I agree with that. That's true. And that's how Paul ends this wonderful text. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul writes, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, our amen to God for his glory. Friends, God is not determined to have the church display his glory so that we can receive glory for what we do. So that we can build great buildings, develop large organizations, have wonderful social gatherings, perform deeds of mercy and kindness to others. Those are all important, all very good. But that's not why the Lord has done what he has done for us. The church is to be a main exhibit of him. Even with our sins and failures, even when a church is small and suffering, even when it lacks sufficient funds, even when it doesn't have the latest equipment, even when, in the view of the world, it hardly has anything, We're called to be uniquely different. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes to the church of his day, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think of that. The honor of Jesus Christ is in the hands of the church. I close with this incident in the life of W.A. Criswell. Dr. Criswell was a longtime pastor of the First Baptist Church, one of the largest churches in America, down in Dallas, Texas. He relates one of the most moving experiences of his life it goes like this. In the heart of Africa, I preached one time in a leper settlement. Leper, not leopard, not the animal. L-E-P-E-R. Leper. Leprosy was a, was a terrible, was and is a terrible disease. Eats away at no, the nose, ears, fingers. Horrible. And so those kinds of people have to go into a separate little settlement all by themselves. They're ostracized from society. They're alone, for the most part, by themselves. So he goes there. I was there where lepers had made their church house out of mud, M-U-D. The pews were mud. The pulpit was mud. The pulpit stand was mud. And the two little benches in the choir were made out of mud. Everything in the church was made out of mud. But Crizzle writes, but it was pretty mud. Because it was the best mud that they could contrive. And God honored the attempt of those poverty-stricken, sad lepers as they sought to build God a house. They did no less than their best. Wow, what a moving description. And talk about glory in the church. It was displayed in that little mud church 
The splendor and beauty of the Lord was shining brightly and dazzling that day that Criswell visited them. As they have innumerable other churches down through the centuries. Those of you that are familiar with the background of the OPC know that we started out in 1936. People had to leave their churches. They had to leave their buildings, their hymnals and Bibles and all the rest. They had to start meeting in storefronts and tents, out in fields, in mortuary homes, in homes, wherever they could find a place to meet. Yes, the church may be despised, hated, and mocked by the world, considered to be a very little, insignificant, irrelevant thing, but that's not how the Lord sees her. I would ask those of you that are not yet professing believers in Jesus, do you want to be a part of this glorious church? You may do so by acknowledging your sinfulness, putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And to those of you that have done that, I close with these words from Spurgeon and ask you to speak to yourself as he does. Oh, my soul, adore him. Feel his splendor. Let his exceeding goodness shine full upon thy soul and warm thee with this rays and let the warmth be adoring love. Oh, my soul, tell out his goodness. And reflect the light which falls upon thee from himself. And so glorify him by manifesting to the sons of men what he manifests to thee. Yea, my soul, let all that is within thee bathe in his boundless goodness. And then glorify him in perpetual service. It's especially in this, that way that God glorifies himself in the church. Everything in the church was made out of mud. Glory in that church. Join me in prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for the church, Jesus Christ, which has been established on earth, that we are part of it, that you've called us from darkness into light. May we remember our responsibility to bring glory to you through our worship, through our service, through our fellowship, through all that we say and do. And we shall give the praise to our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.